Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. And this is our weekly roundup, where we bring in a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. On today's tremendous panel, making his Politicology debut is John Bowden. John is the executive director for the New Dem Action Fund and member services director of the New Dem Coalition. He has worked in two congressional offices, served under three chairs of the House New Democrat Coalition, consulted for numerous Senate and congressional campaigns, and led the communications effort for a special election in upstate New York. John, it is so great to have you today. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Also making her politicology debut is Lene Erickson. Lene is the senior vice president for the Social Policy and Politics Program at Third Way, which is a national center-left think tank. Lene also served as a member of President Obama's third advisory council on faith-based and neighborhood partnerships. Her commentary has been featured in The Washington Post, The New York Times, USA Today, Politico, The New Yorker, and PBS NewsHour. And she has appeared on NPR, Fox News, C-SPAN's Washington Journal, CNN, Bloomberg Television, Air America, and Minnesota Public Radio. Lene, it is a pleasure to have you with us today. I'm excited for the conversation. And rounding out our panel is a familiar voice, the one and only Lucy Caldwell. Lucy is a veteran political strategist and tech founder who served as campaign manager for Joe Walsh's primary challenge to Donald Trump and was formerly a senior political advisor at the Goldwater Institute. Lucy, welcome back and thanks for joining today. Good to see you and be with you all. On this week's Roundup, what House Republicans' ouster of Liz Cheney means for bipartisanship and Washington's ability to govern, the illegitimate recount in Maricopa County, Arizona, and what happens when partisan hacks get their hands on ballots, revelations about manipulation of the public commenting for FCC's net neutrality policies, and what it means when legislative rulemaking tools are usurped and corrupted. Also, in our segment available exclusively to Politicology Plus subscribers, we'll look at the recent development in New York's prosecution of the NRA and what the future holds for the gun rights group. So, let's get started. On last week's Roundup, we talked about the escalating conflict within House Republican leadership finally boiling over. It looked like we were on the cusp of seeing Liz Cheney removed from her leadership position as the number three Republican in the House. And this past Wednesday morning, her caucus removed her by a voice vote that took all of four minutes. On Tuesday evening, knowing what the next day likely had in store for her, Cheney spoke on the House floor. There are a few moments I want to share with listeners before we dive in, so let's take a listen. Tonight, I rise to discuss freedom and our constitutional duty to protect it. Our freedom only survives if we protect it, if we honor our oath taken before God in this chamber to support and defend the Constitution, if we recognize threats to freedom when they arise. Today, we face a threat America has never seen before. A former president who provoked a violent attack on this Capitol in an effort to steal the election has resumed his aggressive effort to convince Americans that the election was stolen from him. He risks inciting further violence. Millions of Americans have been misled by the former president. They have heard only his words, but not the truth as he continues to undermine our democratic process, sowing seeds of doubt 
about whether democracy really works at all. Remaining silent and ignoring the lie emboldens the liar. I will not participate in that. I will not sit back and watch in silence while others lead our party down a path that abandons the rule of law and joins the former president's crusade to undermine our democracy. So with Cheney now officially boxed out of leadership, I want to talk about what this all means for actual governance, because although it may not feel this way as of late, we have a Congress to lead and to serve the American people. And at least on the Republican side, they now seem further than ever from being able to do just that. And I want to note that Jeff Flake, the former U.S. Senator from Arizona, recently uh, penned a Washington Post op-ed, and he opened his piece with a quote from George Orwell that said, the further a society drifts from the truth, the more it will hate those who speak it. And we should note that 70% of Republican voters believe the big lie, according to polling. So it's obvious that Trump remains the de facto leader of the Republican Party, but governing, actually getting things done, often requires bipartisanship. And if you're a Democrat, it's got to be impossible to tell right now who you're supposed to work with, um, who's in charge. So, Lene, I want to hear from you first. What does chaos and a leadership vacuum, if it's fair to characterize it that way, at the top of one of the two major parties actually mean for Congress's ability to get work done for the American people? Well, I think it's pretty obvious that the Republican Party has gone completely off the cliff. You know, when you talk about moderate Republicans at this point, you're talking about people who just believe in democracy, um, (laughs) which is, you know, Mm -hmm. a fairly low bar. So I feel like uh, that makes it hard to have partners in in bipartisanship. But I do think there's a little bit of a difference between what's going on in the House and what's happening in the Senate. The House— We don't need bipartisanship in the House. The House is a majoritarian body. Uh, You don't actually need any Republican votes to get things done, as we've seen. The Senate is really where things are happening. And I thought what was interesting this week was some of the senators' reactions to what was happening in the House. Some of the Republican senators seemed quite disturbed, aggrieved, worried uh, that their House counterparts were going down the wrong path, and both, I think, electorally and potentially morally. Um, And that, I think, is— the only kind of ray of hope that I see in this yeah. in this week is that maybe there are some Senate Republicans who are saying, wow, that's really not, you know, purifying the party of people who speak the truth is not what I'm for. And that might uh, make them more apt to work with some of the moderate Democrats in the Senate with whom they're actually not that far apart ideologically. Yeah. John, how are you thinking about the traditional litmus test of bipartisanship right now? Well, so I think there's a couple of different ways to slice it. Um, You will hear people talk about bipartisanship on the Hill, i.e., how many votes from the other party do you get in a given vote? How many people from the other party do you get co-sponsoring a piece of legislation? That is very different from bipartisan issue-based understandings, which is we put a poll in the field that says a wide swath of the electorate is really concerned about affordable health care, and they have some agreement on the solutions and how we get there. That is a bipartisan solution. If you can get agreement from normal average people who are not following palace intrigue in Washington, D.C. <laughs> um, so there's a couple of different ways to, ways to slice that. Yeah. In the absence of Republicans coming over and saying, we want to work with you on these things, we're going to have to start looking at that secondary definition for how we get things done. Yeah. But who is who is the credible partner right now? Who speaks for the Republicans? It's not Kevin McCarthy anymore, right? And it's certainly not Liz Cheney, and it's certainly not, well, maybe it's going to be at least Stefanik in a minute, but who should Democrats be looking to as, as someone 
who can speak for the Republican Party. And if there isn't a person, what does that mean? Well, I I think, Ron, one of the biggest questions is what is the core of the Republican Party? Because the core of the Republican Party is who speaks for the Republican Party. And I think that this week uh, there's been – I actually do not share any optimism about any of this, including on the Senate side. Um, and there was an interview this morning of Barbara Comstock, former congresswoman mm. from Virginia, who is – a heart in the right place, but it's like a sort of cheerleader for a team that's never, ever going to enter the field. And it's this idea, <laughs> courage is <laughs> courage is contagious. And um, Liz Cheney, what she's doing, there are going to be more Liz Cheneys and Liz Cheney should run for president. Oh and God, and yeah. I don't want to take away at all from the bravery of Liz Cheney, but I believe that this is not any sort of turning point whatsoever. This Mm. is another episode in the spiral down to the whatever nth circle of hell the GOP finds its rescue, or the GOP finds its end place. This is not a party that is going to suddenly find a different core. And the, the comparison between Liz Cheney and Elise Stefanik is really, I think, an important one because- Liz Cheney arguably started out with a uh, stronger stomach for someone like Mm -hmm. Donald Trump than Mm -hmm. Stefanik. Stefanik was a person who was warning about how bad Trump was early on. She was the youngest woman ever elected to Congress, thought of as this moderate, young future of the party. I remember. During the midterms in 2018, she went on a sort of rescue mission to try to stop the bloodshed for Republicans in Congress, thought of as this person who was kind of parallel voice and future. And what has she done since then? She has made her bed with Trump and Kevin McCarthy and Jim Jordan and Devin Nunes and really the big lie. And she has gone from a person who was raising alarms about Trump to being a person who actively participated in an obstruction of of the peaceful transfer of, of power. She promotes the idea that the election was stolen. And she is a person who is very likely to be Liz Cheney's replacement. Yeah. So I think that people thinking, well, there's a here's a Mitt Romney or here's a Lisa Murkowski or here's a Liz Cheney, I I don't see that turning into a growing, a growing uh, force. I just don't. Things aren't trending that way. They right? sure are They're, not. <laughs> it's it's, and we'll get into this in the in the next segment. Um, so I'll wait until then to raise the thought. But uh, just for our listeners, Elise Stefanik, I think, is the only one who's actually declared a candidacy or has said, "I want to be. I want to replace Liz Cheney." And Donald Trump uh, has endorsed her. It says it should be Elise Stefanik, right? So, um, but but I want to go back to Liz Cheney for a second because she's the same person that she was before, four years ago. She's the same person that she was. She didn't move. The caucus moved and her party moved and they're still moving. So where are they actually going is the question. And how does a party torn over whether to admit or obscure a fundamental truth about the integrity of our uh, our elections and of our democratic process that essentially it worked, our institutions held. How do they resolve this? 
John, how do you see it resolving in the House? Well, so I think what you said that she hasn't moved is very important. Liz Cheney is fundamentally a a very conservative Republican. She has always been a very conservative Republican. Um, What I think a lot of the concern for a lot of people on the Hill is right now uh, is that this is becoming less ideological and less issue-based and more based around the whims of one individual. It's more personality-based. It's definitely very partisan, but uh, we're not talking about the old conservative versus liberal split anymore. This is a truth versus untruth and where, where our loyalties lie. So given that this seems to be consuming the Republican Party, at least in the House right now, I'm interested, Lene, in whether or not there are even even sort of not in the media, not uh, maybe not publicly, but is there anything that the Republican Party actually wants to get done for the American people right now? Do they have any kind of policy um, pushes active right now? Uh, because I think most people have most recently just heard about Dr. Seuss and, you know, just noise, right? It's cultural noise. It's a cultural war that they're fighting on the floor of the house. Is there actually anything there behind all of the bluster? I mean, I think that they've obviously oriented themselves around just stopping things Democrats want to do. (laughs) And if they had to, you know, if Mitch McConnell, for example, had to list his biggest priorities, it would be, you know, protect the Trump tax cuts, stop, uh, you know, the election reform bill from going through that would make it harder for them to win elections and, and, you know, pass these crazy laws at the state level uh, and stop any other bipartisan progress that would make President Biden and his team look good. Um, So I don't think that they have have a policy agenda, but I don't think that's particularly new. No, I don't think they no. had a policy agenda at the end of the Trump era either. Right. It was a little, you know, they got the tax cuts done. That was real. And that was, you know, more in line with where Republicans had been in the past. And then they were kind of like, what do we do now? Yeah. And they sat around for basically yeah. two years because they didn't have any ideas. So that piece is kind of carried forth from the last Congress, I so think. There's no policy agenda because there's no big orange man in the White House who wakes up fixated on something that day and that determines what they're going to talk about, right? I mean, I want to talk about the electoral piece of this since you brought it up. Um, Mitt Romney tweeted a warning to his fellow Republicans, expelling Liz Cheney from leadership won't gain the GOP one additional vote, but it will cost us quite a few. And I'm not sure whether I agree with him, Lucy. So first, do you agree with Mitt's warning at face value? Um, Will this cost the GOP votes in 2022? Um, but also, do you expect to see more out of Mitt Romney than just his words if the party continues down this path? I'm not sure if he's right or not. I tend to agree with you. And and I actually think that, again, not to take away from Liz Cheney, but she, if you were writing a novel, if you were writing this into a screenplay, she is not the character you would cast because she is an establishment Republican Mm -hmm. who comes from the Bush-Cheney dynasty. So the talking points on this, if you're Jim Jordan or Madison Cawthorn or insert whatever idiot blowhard Republican member of Congress you want— This is perfect because Mm -hmm. you just say, that's right. We're draining the swamp of people like (laughs) Liz Cheney. So I don't think that it will cost votes because I think that anyone who doesn't have a stomach for authoritarianism and proto-fascism has already abandoned the Republican Party. If that's your thin red line, uh, to borrow a phrase from (laughs) former leader McConnell, (laughs) then – this is just more proof of sort of of the case. 
Yeah. I want to make two points Please. on that just to jump yeah. in. You know, I think people talk a lot about uh, the far left and how it's dragging the Democratic Party to the left. And um, and they compare it to the Republican Party and what's happening right now. And what is really undernoticed is the asymmetry there. Mm. So when you think about uh, Republicans getting elected, 70 uh, percent of people who vote for Republicans call themselves conservatives. Yeah, only 40% of people who call themselves Democrats or vote for Democrats are actually progressives or liberals. 40% yeah. uh, are moderates and 20% are conservatives. So we just have a fundamentally different job, which is reaching out to people that are in a much broader ideological swath. And the Republicans don't have to do that. They can actually win elections with just their base. Yeah. We've seen that happen. Yeah. And so they've decided, and I believe this is what Kevin McCarthy has decided in the last week, is that the best way to get the House back is to double down on that strategy. And and frankly, it doesn't work for Democrats because our base is not as big. And so when you think about the House in particular, we're talking about gerrymandered districts mm -hmm. where they're more worried about their primary than they are their general election. We're talking about redistricting where a lot of uh, state legislatures are going to make it even easier and redder in those districts for Republicans to win. So the people they need to worry about are the people that are calling them up and saying, ousless Cheney. Yes. That is their electoral play. And it just isn't one that works on the other side of the aisle. That's totally right. You brought up a couple of things that, just for our listeners, just as a reminder, there are three episodes on the Politicology feed under Drawing Democracy where we're doing this special series on redistricting, which is happening right now, uh, how district boundaries are drawn and how ultimately they've been uh, manipulated over the last 20 years, at least by Republicans, um, in order to draw districts that are so ridiculously disproportionate uh, to the amount of power they, you know, they would otherwise have. So I'd encourage you, if you want to dig into what Lene is saying, go check those, those episodes out. The thing that came up for me when you mentioned the different electoral calculation that Democrats make versus Republicans is the changing composition of the Democratic coalition. And we've talked a lot on, that, on this podcast about how the Republican Party, at least historically, has been rooted in a, I would call, a faux-principled platform. Meaning, it is a platform made of things that are purported to be um, philosophically grounded, but actually are only the product of electoral victory. And that's how they become enshrined in the platform. But nevertheless, the base believes that the, that the planks are gospel and that they are, they are rooted in something fundamental, which is why adherence to that platform, adherence to the ideology that continues to evolve is so strong and binding uh, that that Republicans traditionally don't spend a lot of time building coalitions, right? Uh, lots of groups with different interests that are that are bound together just for the sake of progress, right? That's the Democratic Party, and so I'm really interested in the shift that we're seeing now, uh, and what both of you think about this in increasingly more white collar workers who are leaving the Republican party because of the big lie, because of its, you know, downward spiral toward authoritarianism and anti-democratic laws being passed all over the country. They're, they're moving to the democratic party, which is, I think making it more and more difficult for that coalition to hold together because these are not traditional allies of democratic politics. So how are you thinking about that electorally? And I, uh, Leave it to you who should. I mean, I, I can kick first. us off and say, you know, you, you mentioned the word coalition. There is the new Democrat coalition on, on Capitol Hill. They're, you know, part of their job is 
we there yes virginia there are 94 mainstream democrats in america who reflect the values of your average american and to your point about uh, some of these white collar workers who are leaving the republican party and coming over uh, part of our job and part of the role we play is to give them a home where we say like we understand that you are tax sensitive we understand that you might be sensitive from a regulatory standpoint your small business owners and we want to work with you. Uh, there are there are things that we can do to help you get ahead in in this country, and they are policy based. They are wonky. A lot of them don't fit on the back of a yeah. on the back of a bumper sticker. Um, but there are things that we can do, and they are very deeply rooted in democratic values. Um, but they speak to some of those disaffected Republicans that are coming mm-hmm. our way. That's part of the role that we try to play, uh, and and it, to a large degree, it works. You can see it in the 2018 election results. Yeah, Lene, and how do you? In, yeah. And in 2020, you know, and if you look at the differences between the map in 2016 and the map in 2020, the shift was almost entirely in the suburbs. Mm. So you, if you mm-hmm. overlay it, it is. A, a suburban voter shift. And part of that is because the suburbs are much more diverse than they used to be. So we are not talking just about white people here. We are talking about a broad swath of middle-class families in the suburbs who uh, who have been turned off by where the direction of where the Republican Party is going. Um, and I think that that's going to continue. One of the things that really surprised me in the 2020 crosstabs, when you look across um, the performance between Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden, mm-hmm. was that, you know, this education education gap that had happened in 2016, where college-educated voters, college-educated white voters, used to vote the same as non-college-educated white voters. And then in 2016, they split. In 2020, that split got bigger. I didn't actually think it was possible for it to get bigger because it was really big in 2016, but it got bigger. And I think that's the direction we're going to continue to head. So that means that Democrats have a lot of people in in their coalition who are concerned about, you know, the salt the salt tax provisions. Yeah. They're concerned about uh, individual income tax. And I think it means that Democrats need to be careful to not go the kind of Bernie Sanders route because these folks are not asking for socialism, believe me. <laughs> They're asking for sane government policies that, you know, support economic growth. And that's what we need to be on have on offer in order to keep them in the coalition. Yeah. I think you can even look back even further back and think about what happened between 2012 and 2016 and the losses that were suffered by Republicans in 2012. And you can look at a place like Michigan. You look at in that matchup, you know, Mitt Romney, practically a favorite son of Michigan, just getting destroyed by Obama. And then four years later, in some of those same districts, Trump was beating out Clinton. And I think that that reflects that the idea of like um, an Obama-Trump voter was not a one-off. And this is something Mike Madrid has talked about a lot, that thinking about old labels that we used to use, we are using yesterday's labels to describe what's happening today. And we are using the wrong measuring stick to think about this realignment, which probably is permanent. And you can see that it's permanent when you look at how Republicans are messaging as candidates. I think you think about, I mean, first of all, just to dovetail on what we talked about earlier, the Republican Party literally does not have a platform anymore. I mean, they literally do not have a policy platform. So they're meaning at their convention this yeah. summer, no they decided platform. not to have yeah, one. Like, they were like, it. we Let's don't just have use policies. The last one. Nobody, we have nobody reads it anyway. Correct. It doesn't matter. Correct. <laughs> Correct. And so, you know, you you see people like J.D. Vance out of Ohio and people like Josh Hawley and people like Elise Stefanik, people who are like 
Ivy League educated people who, you know, came up in venture capital or, you know, technology, they are just sort of all in on the party of white grievance. Things are bad for you because there are blacks and Hispanics who live in your neighborhood now and you lost your factory job. And it's obviously all bogus, but even these people who themselves could make the distinctions between whether or not, say, a publisher deciding not to publish your book is a violation of your First Amendment rights or big tech is out to get you. It is It is just boogeyman politics. They know better. And they're looking at that shift between 2012, 2016, 2020, and onward. They're looking at the same data that we all are looking at. They want to stay in power. This is a calculus for them. This is a a determined calculus. And so one of the things I've been most sick of this week is this question of whether or not Trump's influence is waning or will it wane in the months to come. I don't care. It doesn't matter because it doesn't matter. He's infected them. They have transmogrified into Trumpian creatures themselves. So I don't care whether or not Trump is in power, Don Jr., Ivanka, Ron DeSantis. They are all... Infected. He's, he's infected them with a virus, and he was the d- d- delivery mechanism, right? He's gone now, and the virus is spreading like wildfire. But speaking of boogeyman politics, which, which I love, like we're going to use that a lot more. Uh, let's talk about the Arizona recount. So we've seen what telling the truth about election security gets you in today's Republican Party. So Let's now turn to the egregious effort in Arizona to keep the big lie alive. We've explored this on the podcast, um, you know, the ways Republicans in states like Georgia and Texas and Iowa um, and others are increasing voting restrictions and in some case creating new ways for legislatures to interfere with election results. But there's a sham recount underway in Arizona that is actually threatening to delegitimize elections going forward. In March, Arizona Senate Republicans contracted a Florida-based company called Cyber Ninjas to audit, and I put audit in air quotes, the ballots in Maricopa County. This is paid for out of the state Senate's operating budget, plus donations, including one from Patrick Byrne, the former CEO of Overstock.com and noted purveyor of election conspiracy theories who gave a million dollars. And the president of Cyber Ninjas, Doug Logan, is a Trump supporter who also shared conspiracy theories about the election. Cyber Ninjas has been given total authority to rifle through the country's ballots and voting machines, and it goes without saying, whatever results they purport to find cannot be trusted, but they will undoubtedly be used to fuel lies and conspiracy theories about the election and thus to undermine faith in government and the legitimacy of President Biden's election. And I want to talk really quickly before we go into questions about chain of custody. There's this legal concept uh, that's really important to understand here. So chain of custody is basically the assurance that critical records, including ballots, are properly retained, preserved, and maintained. And if that's broken, then the integrity of the ballots is compromised and they can no longer be held as an accurate historical record. Uh, Washington's Secretary of State Kim Wyman, who is a Republican, called this the election's equivalent of stomping through a crime scene. So, Lene, how will disrupting the chain of custody, whether whether it's intentional or out of pure incompetence, both of which I think are likely here, uh, how will that serve to further blur the truth about Maricopa County's election? 
I mean, I think that this is the most bananas thing that's happened in a bananas week. (laughs) (laughs) There's there's just no precedent for it. It you know, I I used to be a lawyer in another life, and uh, it would be like giving the the prosecution all your evidence and letting them go do whatever they want with it for two weeks and then come back, and all of a sudden there's fingerprints on that knife that weren't there before. Mm -hmm. Like that's literally what we're talking about. You're just saying, oh, here's all the evidence. Peace out. Do whatever you want. Come back and then make your case with you know your whatever you've done uh, to to it in the last couple of weeks. And and it's just craziness. What I really don't understand though is how these Republican state legislatures are recounting elections in which they won. Oh yeah. So so how what is the cognitive dissonance that needs to be happening yeah. for them to say, well, my election, my my election in this same election was totally valid, but then all these other ones where the Democrats won weren't. So like, I just don't understand how that works in their head, like totally illegitimate election. Then how are you sitting in office? And um, and I just think it's it's astounding. But it is part of this continued effort to politicize the um, the mechanisms by which we actually count votes. And we've seen it in some of these, um, you know, other state legislatures and Georgia's doing the same, giving more and more power to the politicians who are supposed to be elected by this to decide whether or not they were elected. And I think that's Mm going to continue to be uh, a thing we're going to see in more and more red states. Speaking of cognitive dissonance, a strategist once told me early in my career Never try to inject logic into the political process. <laughs> that um, may be right. <laughs> the, go ahead, Tom. Well, and continuing the, yeah. the legal metaphor, I mean, yeah. th- this is a little bit of double jeopardy because some of that auditing work has already been done. Oh, yeah, they yeah, looked yeah. at the machines, they make sure that there was no malware that they weren't tampered recounts. with. Right, and then they, they count a hand counted the ballots. Did they match up with the machines? Turns out they matched up 100%. So putting on my campaign hat for a second, mm-hmm. what possible reason could they have for bringing this back up? In addition to making people feel good who actually think that the the election might have been stolen, they can raise a lot of money off of this and they can keep an active base of voters active and in the field and engaged and organized and angry um, at a time when that is is helpful for them politically. And we actually, they can raise a lot of money and we have no idea whom they're raising money from. We know that Patrick Byrne and some other sort of names we know uh, have put in large amounts of money. But a lot of this funding is largely happening online through things like GoFund, GoFundMes. And I mean, think about sowing discord and think about foreign forces that have mm-hmm. <laughs> injected chaos into our elections. Who knows? I mean, this could be funded by like a Russian sort of disinformation could campaign. Could be Russia we and have, China working together. We have, like, no, right? we have no idea. <laughs> we have no idea. And there has been no push at all to put in officials in this process who have any credibility. It goes beyond just someone like Doug Logan and the cyber ninjas. Ken Bennett, the former secretary of state of Arizona, is a person who spent a lot of his time as secretary of state trying to claim that he was going to keep Barack Obama off the ballot until Barack Obama produced a birth certificate showing that he really was born in Hawaii. So these are not credible people. Maricopa County is a very, very large county. It's one of the very largest counties in the country. It's Metro Phoenix. It has been trending blue for Mm -hmm. a long time. If you win Maricopa County, where 60% of the votes in Arizona are, you win the state. The whole ball game is in Maricopa County. This is a failure of Republican state lawmakers to 
face up to the fact that their messages are not resonating and people in metropolitan areas don't want to support them. And I mean, it's all so egregious, but the kind of one kernel of sort of humor in this, in the sort of life imitates art kind of vein, (laughs) is that this whole recount is happening at a state fairgrounds. Oh my God. I did not know that. Yes. Oh my God. State fairgrounds of my childhood. (laughs) And they at the same time have another event going on it's a carnival. It was planned long before this, and it's called the Crazy Times Carnival. <laughs> <laughs> so, this, this is, is like four seasons yes. gardening level. <laughs> it is. It is. It really is. is. State, State Fair if Fairgrounds officials came out and said they just wanted to be clear that they had planned this long before the you know the audit. Which, by the way, there's no end of it in sight. It could go on for months. They're actually stopping it today because a bunch of high school graduations are going to happen and then they're going to resume again. But this could go on for months. And and it is, the the fairground stuff is funny, but it's no laughing matter. Yeah. And DOJ yeah. has even said they're going to get involved because th- you're talking about ballots. And now there's no way to match them up to the voter. Right. These are not ballots where it says the person's name, right? You have the envelope, you have the ballot, you have all these bananas people in there with pens, right? There's been a lot of, there's no press. Press can go in as observers, but there's no press credentialing. And because, you know, they're doing things like talking about how maybe there are bamboo fibers and they're going to use a 4K camera. Should they use a 5K camera? Because they need to figure out if 40,000 ballots were shipped in from Asia. (laughs) And so aside from all the things like using black and blue pens, where are they to go to the chain of custody issues? But it really came to a head when they announced that they were thinking about going door to door and and showing up at voters' homes to say, can we talk about your vote history? Oh, my God. To find out whether or not you, well, maybe you actually were. We're going to find out you were a Trump voter and your ballot says you weren't. I mean, it's, it is oh, so, it is so terrifying. And, and I think that, that it's great that people like Kim Wyman yeah. and other, you know, Arizona, Arizona Republicans like Bill Gates, a county supervisor, or Krista Rose, a longtime prominent Republican lawyer and author are speaking out against this. But again, there are just a handful of Republicans saying this is insane, and this is not just like partisan politics. This is kind of Gestapo level yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. From a legal standpoint, what are the implications of this? Uh, I, like, I don't even know what to call it because it's so ridiculous. But they've been given legal authority to do this somehow. Are there? What are the? What are the potential consequences in terms of the outcome of the election? Is I there, think, is I think any... the answer is none. Okay, but... so yeah, so who's who, who? Just just so we're all clear, who has given Cyber Ninjas the authority to do this, and what process is uh, is there is supposed to ensue once they've figured out whatever you know the results? Anybody know? I, I don't know the answer, but it would not shock me to learn that this is a build the airplane as you fly it kind of operation. Okay, um, right if if. We'll see. We'll see what there is to see, and if there's some result that needs to be questioned, we'll bring it to the fore. Um, that wouldn't shock me, but I I don't know straight up. I don't know the answer. The Arizona State Senate kicked this process off, and actually, there are even a couple of senators who now say that they regret having supported this. Not many, but a few. Um, but that 
sort of began as a quite an acrimonious battle between the Arizona State Senate and the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors, who really wanted to try to stop um, these ballots from being turned over to these people. Um, they lost out. It's been tied up in the courts. It continues to be the subject of, of a lot of ongoing litigation. I think that the the sense has been, well, nothing's going to happen. This isn't going to change an election outcome. And and I think that probably a calculus was made, like, let's just let's just sort of let them do this thing and we'll, mm. it'll be over quickly. And mm. we'll, yeah, and I think it's just like a, it's a Pandora's a box. Yeah, that's what I'm afraid of. If I could inject Please. logic one more time. <laughs> you can know, I've, I've been uh, told it's not relevant. Uh, one other thing I think is interesting is they're only counting the ballots in Maricopa County which is where Democrats vote. Mm-hmm. They're, the whole basis of Republicans' arguments for the 2000 election in front of the Supreme Court was, well, if you really wanted to know the answer, you should count all of Florida's ballots, but you're only counting some of the counties because those are the ones that you think that will benefit you politically. And so it is very funny just to see, again, how far the Republican Party has moved yeah. <laughs> to now we're saying, oh, only go into these Democratic cities and recount those ballots. It's because yeah. we need to prove some crazy lie that uh, that we've told our voters to believe and now they need evidence for. It's swung, but it is swung on the axis of pursuing and preserving power at all costs and not any kind of logical consistency or philosophical grounding. But you're totally right. Okay, so here's the thing, just to zoom out a little bit, um, I'm really interested in how you guys think about this. When we talk about things... Uh, when the four of us, for example, people who acknowledge that the election is legitimate, which it feels like that's like that's saying something now. When we talk about the things that are threatening our democracy, it sometimes feels like I think, you know, to the end user, to the to the average voter, that our side's dialogue, that that kind of dialogue is filled with abstractions. Like the very foundations of American democracy, the, you know, the fabric of our social contract that you guys understand what I mean. When the other side has a very specific claim, a very specific lie that has proven to be extremely potent in terms of its persuasive value. And I wonder how you think about that. How do we combat that? How can we be more specific when we're talking about the damage that the big lie has done? Um, and I just want to I just want to throw that on the table for for discussion. So, any feel free to take it away, John, if you have thoughts. But I mean, this feels like a big problem. I mean, one of the one of the first and, and best things that an individual elected leader can do is simply go back to the state or district that they represent and be a normal, forthright human being. Um, I think part of the job that we have over the next year and a half before we get into 2022 is to prove that America can govern, America can do big things, they can get things done. And an in- individual going back to her or his district and saying, look, here are the things that I'm working on, here are the things that I've done. And by the way, here's my background. Maybe I came from the business community. Maybe I 
I was a teacher, maybe I was a nurse, maybe, right? Like mm-hmm. I'm one of you and I'm perfectly normal. People getting back to that state, that post-COVID state where they can touch and feel their government and see it at work is going to be wildly important mm-hmm. to combat this because we may not have a direct answer to a crazy question because it is fundamentally a crazy question. That's how they keep yeah. us off message. But going yeah. home, staying on message and just being that normal straight shooter human being is going to be very important. Yeah. And also I think, you know, the underpinnings of what allowed all of this to happen was a complete depletion of trust in government yeah. over the last few decades. If you look at the the Pew data that that has evolved, it's really striking to see how few people actually think that government can do good things, yeah. can do anything that's productive in their lives, can even function. And, um, you know, that has that's been building for a long time and then drop Donald Trump into the middle of that and you get what we have now. So I think part of what is incumbent on people that believe in democracy and, and want to see it work um, is to actually do things that voters care about. Voters do not care whether Liz Cheney is in GOP no. leadership. Like nope. no, no focus group I've ever done has brought nope. that up. That's just not on <laughs> yep. their plate. They yeah. want to know, like, can I send my kid back to school because yeah. I'm going crazy with them locked in my house? You know, am I going to be able to get a job? Can the uh, employers in my community hire? You know, where are we going uh, in terms of the future of the country? And so I, that, I think, is the only way we get back to, you yeah. know, some, some level of normalcy. It's yeah. not by talking about ab- abstract democracy right. and, and the Constitution. It's Those, by actually just doing things. Yeah, Those things <laughs> are true and important, but as a communication yeah. strategy, it's very sort of nebulous for an end user for the for an average person well I think that Democrats really have to stop acting like the underdog they have to start mm. acting like mm. they're in power mm. and this is not even just merely a matter of Bring of numbers in Congress <laughs> <laughs> yes exactly exactly yeah. but maybe stop saying break the filibuster maybe mm-hmm. say we're going to start passing things by a simple majority because these are these are policies that we know people want Boom. look there's a reason that Republicans who voted against the last stimulus package then went home and promoted that stimulus package to their constituents through their constituent <laughs> services. Right. I mean, it's appalling, yeah. but I mean, we should plan to continue to be appalled by these appalling people. <laughs> <laughs> they know that these things are very popular. It is the reason that they, after fighting Obamacare tooth and nail, talk about how important it is to cover people with pre-existing conditions. They know that these things are popular. They don't want them, but it's the reason the part of why they fight them so hard is that they know that once they're passed, mm-hmm. people will be really happy and want them. So, Democrats are in power. <laughs> they control the House, the Senate, and the White House, and they should start acting like it. Mm. I mean, I will. I will add to that that the the one glimmer of hope for me in in the in the craziness and the nonsense you see coming from the other side is they fundamentally don't want to meet Democrats at their level. They, you're, to your yeah. point, they don't want to talk about pre-existing conditions. They don't want to talk no. about rising sea levels and the effects in, in in Houston or on the shore in in Florida. They don't want to talk about how we're going to get people back to work. Because Democrats are right on those issues, yeah. um, is fairly often right, and mm-hmm. and when they talk to when they if if people can go home and speak to the concerns, forget the policy. Nobody wants your five point plan, um, mm-hmm. but they do want to hear that. Like, again, to Lene's point, like I hear you. You want to get your kid back to school. You want to get back to work. And I I know you you probably in your heart feel like it's safe. Masks stink. I get it. We're gonna get through this, folks. Like people just want to know that they're listening. They, they want to mm-hmm. hear. To borrow from the Clinton era, I feel your pain. That's what they. That's what they want, and that's what Republicans will never yes. give them. Yeah. All right. 
Let's talk about the internet. Specifically, what we learned this week about what went into the FCC's net neutrality decision-making process and how advocacy is done in Washington. So it's been some time since net neutrality was a hot topic. So here's a quick uh, refresher. During President Obama's tenure, the FCC put in place rules that prevented internet service providers, so think Verizon Fios, Comcast, whoever you pay for internet access, from throttling or slowing down or even blocking specific websites and apps, or from charging companies more for faster speeds to consumers. In other words, net neutrality was the idea, is the idea, that ISPs should treat all internet activity and users equally. But then in 2017, after Donald Trump had elevated Ajit Pai to the chairmanship of the FCC, he repealed those Obama-era rules. So why is this in the news again? Well, in 2017, there was a public commenting period during which the FCC received a record-breaking number of comments about these new rules, more than 22 million. And there is now a new report from the New York Attorney General that says nearly 18 million of those were fake. A 19-year-old submitted over 7.7 million comments in favor of net neutrality, and a trade group representing those ISPs called Broadband for America spent $4.2 million submitting over 8.5 million fake comments to the FCC. This is according to the Associated Press. I quote, the goal of the broadband industry campaign, according to internal documents and the attorney general's office, received was to make it seem like there was widespread grassroots support for the repeal of net neutrality that could give the FCC chairman at the time, again, Ajit Pai, volume and intellectual cover for the repeal. So first, to get at why all of this matters to us and our politics generally, government agencies are supposed to use the comments they receive from industry and public interest groups and the public to shape how they make rules. And some have claimed, I, I noted, that comments in these public review periods don't have an impact because they are very rarely substanceless. And I call BS on that because public comments and metrics about those comments are always used as rhetorical ammunition by politicians to advocate for what they're trying to get done. Otherwise, the industry groups wouldn't pay millions of dollars for this kind of thing. And we call it astroturfing in campaign politics, right? It's not true grassroots activism. It's it's fake. It's astroturf. It's not real grass. So what does this tell you about how industry groups see their role and their mission today? And how has that changed? Because this isn't really advocacy, right? It, it, essentially, we now have a new, more modern word for this. It's disinformation. Yeah, I was thinking back to around the time this happened, to 2017, because I was selling a advocacy tech product to trade associations, campaigns, nonprofits. And around that time, advocacy groups, which of course have been doing this in some form for a long time, many clients of mine were becoming very, very interested in how to track things like social media posts. There was a big push to get rulemaking bodies like FCC, SEC to consider things like tweets, mm. Um, mm. public comment. And mm. when we think about that now, flash forward to everything we know about the 2016 election, everything we know about sort of the flood of disinformation and into fake our- accounts on Twitter. Totally, <laughs> into our public discourse. It's really kind of insane- to think about, but it's also an issue where there just are not easy answers. You are absolutely right, 
and I think everyone here probably has experienced this within efforts and organizations that whether it's legislators or members of a commission, they do really care about how many yays, nays, how many mm-hmm. for, against, neutral they have on these bills. And they, behind the scenes, their own teams are working to gin up more support for this. Um, and so th- these rulemaking decisions are, like everything else, not occurring in a vacuum at all. But I, I don't think that there's an easy answer because a a world in which we can get legitimate and true people deeply engaged in submitting public comment, that's fantastic. People having access to information and ease of access to contacting their elected officials, appointed officials, that's great. You know, it's probably not something that is solved as simply as like better captcha, <laughs> you know, <laughs> clicks. I'm not a, I'm a human, but, but it's, it's a delicate balance because it, it also reflects a shift away from an old style of advocacy, which was sort of like beltway, you know, thank you for smoking, yeah. kind of yeah, like yeah, steak yeah, dinner yeah. lobbying. We want to get away from that. Having regular Americans engaged in, in these issues is fantastic. But at the point that it's not regular Americans or not regular sentient beings, that's a real problem. Such a good movie. And I know uh, so much less about tech than Lucy does, so I'll let her talk about CAPTCHA. That's, <laughs> that's not my specialty. But uh, but I do think that the operative word is cover. Yeah. Because the question wasn't, what should the FCC do? It sounds to me, at least from you know the reports that I've read, that they were trying to make sure that they had at least enough in numbers that would make it look like, oh, okay, the public's kind of divided, so then the FCC can do what they already wanted to do. That's what cover means. And I've done it in advocacy. We've all done it. Not the fraudulent way, but you do need to have cover, right? Because your uh, your policymaker might want to side with you, but if 80% of their constituent contact is on the other side— they're not going to, even yeah. if they know it's the right thing. Yeah. And that's representative democracy that's exactly. when it works. And so yeah. you actually need to gin up uh, at least a, a modicum of support on the other side to balance it out if you know the policymakers with you that then they'll be able to make that decision. And so I just thought that was a really interesting word from their internal documents, cover, cover. which means they think that the FCC wants to do their thing. That's right. They just need to create the optics to allow them to do so. Yeah. Yeah, but there's probably as we're as you're looking at this, it is probably important to define the astroturf, grass tops, grassroots yeah, split. Please, um, there may be a tendency to say, well, we we got eight thousand letters on this, but they're all form letters, so it doesn't really matter, right? It, connected to those eight thousand form letters are individuals who told the Electronic Frontier Foundation or the ACLU or insert group that's interested in this. Yes, please take my email and send me issues because I'm really invested in this. So these are people in the communities who have said, I'm engaged. I want to learn more. I want to get involved. And that is super important. Now, to the point about having a good CAPTCHA, if they are not real individuals or if that is not their stated opinion, well, now we have a real problem. Um, And if there's a silver lining here, you mentioned the uh, New York AG, Tish James, who's looking at this. I also saw a report that uh, Republican Senator Rob Portman got something like 14,000 letters on this that were potentially not real. So now we have a bipartisan problem that is all about getting people engaged in government. Great. Let's do it. Let's get on it. There were actually members of Congress whose names were used fraudulently attached to comments in this public review, which which is just bonkers to me. But before we leave this particular subject, maybe um, I just want to make sure our listeners are clear on this. So, Lene, maybe you can tell us from an issue advocacy standpoint, 
about how these public commenting periods are supposed to be used, their importance in the rulemaking process. Uh, why do we have them in the first place if they can be gamed so easily? And if they can be gamed so easily, then are they due to be updated, right? Is there some more modern version of this kind of public input uh, that we ought to be looking at? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we've seen a lot of executive actions over the last uh, few administrations, and we talk a lot about executive power. But what we want to see from a new administration is for them to make policy changes that actually have the public's buy-in, not just to go back and forth and like, okay, Trump did this, now we repeal it, back and forth. And and we've seen a lot of that, unfortunately. And the way to limit that back and forth uh, and seesawing in policy is to actually have more of a process. Process, not just the the pen and the phone, not just uh, the president saying, oh, we're going to do this now because I'm the president, but actually going through a rigorous process to say, we're going to regulate on this, tell the public, we're going to make a decision on this topic. What is it that you feel we should do? Listen to those things, take it in, use it to help uh, define the policy, and then put a policy out that is you know, much more reflective of the United States and the people in it rather than just the president. And yeah. that that's what we're supposed to be doing here. And I do think there's there's a lot of value in that. There were, so I think like 80% of the comments were fake. That means like 2 million or something were yeah. real, right? right? Real right. people right. who like had an opinion on this and wrote to their government and said, this is my opinion. So that's not to discount that 80% were bots or something, but, but that's a lot of people. And that's, that's still people. better than not having that input and just having our executive branch like do whatever it wants and then do whatever it wants again. Um, It also makes it harder to undo when you do it through the regulatory process rather than the pen and the phone, which is, you know, just the president does what they want. Um, And that and that actually is, you know, it's why Trump wasn't able to solidify some of his policies because he didn't do this. (laughs) He wasn't very good at, you know, regulation in the in the appropriate way. Um, And it, it just takes longer to undo. Um, And it took him longer to undo some of the Obama policies because his people didn't know how to do the regulatory process. Like Betsy DeVos didn't know how to (laughs) do the regulatory process. And so it took a long time on some of those uh, to figure out who she needed to hire to tell her how to do it. Uh, So I think it's a good thing. We should continue to do it. We should, you know, figure out how to not let bots invade it. Um, But it's important. Now that we're up to speed on some of the biggest stories of the week, I have one more question to close us out. What stories are you following that may have flown under the radar or that our listeners might have missed, but that may influence our politics in some way we might not yet be expecting? Lucy? Well, Ron, I know that you follow cryptocurrency and oh, NFTs quite quite, quite closely, and this is a adjacent, crypto-adjacent story, which is that... Um, this week, after less than 50 days of having had a policy in place about it, Tesla announced that they will stop accepting Bitcoin uh, because of the fact that Bitcoin and cryptocurrency in general is incredibly energy yeah. inefficient. Mm-hmm. So Bitcoin uses as much electricity annually as the entire Netherlands, which is kind of insane to think about. Cryptocurrency also is very, very um, taxing on water supply. Uh, Mm. And so it turns out that cryptocurrency, you know, which is such an exciting, brave new frontier in in how we interact globally in financial transactions, 
is not so great when it comes to another big priority, which is figuring out how to be a good steward of of our natural resources, which are certainly more finite than the endlessly expanding supply of crypto. So Tesla has said that not only will they no longer accept Bitcoin to pay for your, you know, sweet Tesla truck, (laughs) but also they won't sell off Bitcoin. And they had been selling off billions of Bitcoin to to pad their earnings. But I think, especially when you think about Elon Musk, who's their CEO and has been kind of a very outspoken crypto bro, when you think about Musk making an announcement like that and a, a company like Tesla that is so cutting edge and so closely aligned with innovation like cryptocurrency making that, I, th- I think it's going to be really send send uh, waves through the larger yeah. cryptocurrency community. It's a big signal for sure. John? Sure. So I uh, like to fancy myself a housing nerd, so I'm going to stick to a specific space. Um, The chief economist at Redfin was quoted this week as saying that he thinks there could be upwards of a trillion dollars or more more in home sales in the South, specifically citing uh, folks coming from the coasts and wealthier individuals moving during the pandemic, making a new home. And I I say this because you mentioned earlier that you are doing work on redistricting. Mm -hmm. This is a redistricting year. They are drawing new lines for Congress candidates. And while they might have a sense of who lives there now, we are seeing changing demographics and patterns in Texas and Georgia and Florida. By the way, Texas and Florida both picking up two seats, which yep. means that they're going to have to, the districts are going to look fundamentally different. Um, mm-hmm. They may know who's there now, but and, and do, I, I, do I think this will have an effect in the 22 election? Probably not. But yeah. 24, 26, 28, absolutely. And as we all know now, one election's not the whole ball game. I'm looking at a trillion dollars in home sales in the South. <sighs> that is a good story. That's a really good story. Thank you. <laughs> Lene, no pressure. <laughs> I'm going to leave us I'm going to leave us with some optimism. Okay, so, terrific. Uh I've been working on policing reform um at the federal level and you know one of the things that we've seen is that red, purple and blue states have taken steps on policing reform whether it's accountability, transparency, there's been a lot of progress across the country and it's created some upward pressure for Congress to actually do something on this issue. Now, I uh I am from Minnesota and uh, I am very aware that in a couple of weeks is going to be the anniversary of George Floyd's killing. Mm-hmm. And that really has been uh, the concentrated moment that folks are focusing on to get policing reform done. So I am very hopeful. There are ongoing negotiations happening between Tim Scott uh, of South Carolina, a Republican, and Cory Booker, the Democrat from New Jersey in the Senate. The House has already passed a bill. But what makes me the most optimistic is when I talk to people, they're in a really different place than they were last year. Mm. Last year, they said it's this one bill that we passed or bust. We're not going to do anything else. But what they've seen from the states is that actually this is an issue where you can make progress and then come back again and then come back again and Mm. then come back again. So there is more appetite than there was last time around to actually do something, even if it's not everything with the understanding that it will be progress, let's do what we can, and then we can come back and do it again. So I'm hopeful that in the next couple of weeks, we're going to hear an announcement that there will be some bipartisan progress on policing reform, and it would be just exactly what we need in this country to uh, really be able to commemorate uh, the beginning of what has been an incredible movement. That would be huge, especially if it's bipartisan. Okay, stay tuned for that, folks. Before I let you go, where can everyone find you on the internet? Lene? I'm at Lene Erickson on Twitter. John? 
Uh, that's great. Hold on just a second as I remember my Twitter handle that I use regularly. <laughs> i tell you what, I'm going to actually direct people to the New sure. Democrat Coalition Action sure. Fund. You can go great. to www, because you still have to say that part, newdemactionfund.com. Awesome. I'm on Twitter at Lucy M. Caldwell. Wonderful. And I'm at Ron Steslow on Twitter. Thank you to everyone at home for listening. If you have any questions or advice for us, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. You can also help us by rating and reviewing the show wherever you get your podcasts and by sharing this episode. And make sure you're following us on Twitter and Instagram at politicologypod. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.